Hey everyone, this is JT from The Uninvited, and you're listening to my weekly mixtape with Brian Colburn. In fact, you're listening to the best episode he ever recorded because it's with me, and we talk about indie alternative rock from the 90s. So awesome stuff. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. Joining me for tonight's collaboration is JT, lead singer of The Uninvited. JT, thank you so much for joining me tonight on My Weekly Mixtape. Now, Brian, it's great to be here with you. I've been really looking forward to this. Likewise, likewise. And what I'm going to do is start by asking you the same question I ask each and every guest on this show. JT, What does the word mixtape mean to you? Oh, mixtape has so many good emotional connotations to me. I'm mixtape generation, right? I made mixtapes on cassette for years and years and years. And so mixtape to me is love. I mean, I would make mixtapes for friends, for potential girlfriends, you know, and it's, they're like little love letters, right? You, uh, you know, you make this cool mixtape, you say, hey, I made this mixtape for you. And, and then you know, the person understands the vibe that's coming off of that, uh, you know, from that music. And yeah, it's a little love letter. It's for thank you. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a matter of friendship, you know, saying, you know, I get your vibe. I, I, I know what you dig. And, and, uh, and here's, and here's some of it. Here's, you know, here's what I think is super cool that I think you're going to think is super cool too. I loved, I loved making mixtapes and just, yeah, love it. And what's great about that is you could take other musicians' stories and create your own story by mixing them together. And where in playlists now, people drag and drop and hit shuffle, you lose that privatization of the music. And that's what this show is about. Right. Getting us back to that moment again. That's a great point about hitting shuffle. You know, a, a good playlist is supposed to be heard in the order you uh, you do it in. And 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 I, you know, coming up with today's playlist, I'd I'd even thought of it that way. It's like, all right, this is the order; it's got to go. <laughs> all right. Well, tonight JT and I are going to be co-curating a mixtape of '90s indie alternative, or as I like to call it, songs that I feel fall under the category of underrated '90s rock music. Because a lot of the songs that I have on my list. In the 90s, I lived in North Carolina for a few years, and there was a station called 106.5 The End, and they always said Indie Alternative, and they Mm. played a lot of bands that everybody knows, Matchbox 20, Counting Crows, Garbage, the big arena headlining bands, but they didn't just play that. Anytime they played an insanely massive band, it was followed up with a band that you might not know. And a lot of these bands we're going to probably be talking about tonight. And that is what I looked for in my songs that I chose for tonight. JT, what were you looking for in the songs that you brought to the table this evening? You know, it's a great, it, 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 you kind of stole it right from me there. That that same kind of vibe of, you know, when when in the 90s, when we talked about alternative rock, there was sort of this upper echelon that meant alternative, Nirvana. Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, pretty much anything from Seattle, you know, that was what defined alternative. And 
you know, but before those bands became mainstream, shall we call it alternative, you know, they were underground indie alternative bands. Nirvana was on sub pop for years before, yes. you know, they, they broke through and nobody had heard of them. And those who did were like, this is like ah, my satanic underground music. And <laughs> so for me, you know, living most of the nineties in Los Angeles and, and being in the clubs and trying to get the band going, you know, during that whole time, I had so much great exposure to indie alternative to the alternative bands that were the alternative of the alternative and got to listen to radio stations, not just like KROQ who weren't, you know, who were like the number one alternative station in the United States, but they also weren't afraid to play all sorts of underground stuff. They even had a couple of, um, of shows, Rodney on the rock, uh, mm -hmm. where, you know, um, Rodney Bingenheimer, the scene king from the 70s and 80s of, of uh, Los Angeles, would play all this underground stuff that no one had heard of. And then you had KXLU, which was the college station playing just like the most cutting edge alternative rock. And so, yeah, so I was thinking in terms of like, okay, indie, what is the alternative of the alternative without getting too far off into like, obscure college rock weirdness nothing wrong with that but like oh here's here's 20 bands you've never heard of in your life and never will and their music kind of sucks you know so it was you know uh so that well i will say this there are one or two bands i might dip into that might fall under that oh there's you've never be. heard of them however <laughs> there's going to be some bands that i mentioned tonight that i know a lot of people listening are going to immediately be like, no, they're popular. Don't you dare say that they're indie or alternative. And yes, they're very popular bands, but I'm talking about the mainstream popularity where some of the mm -hmm. bands I'm going to talk about tonight are musically. Musicians love these bands. They mm -hmm. have massive followings. They play big venues, but mainstream radio and MTV pretty much ignored them. So they still are outliers on the indie alternative scene, if you would call it that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that, that, that's a great call. And a lot of the ones on my list are sort of a part of my personal musical journey. Uh, they're bands that I heard and considered to be either influential or peers at the time, you know, and I would like listen to them like, oh, wow, crank that up. And I have... And this is going to be a common theme throughout this whole thing. I have this real affinity to guitar pop music. I love a great song. I love a big hook. I love a melody you can sing. And, you know, you take a look at bands like Sonic Youth and some of these others that were really experimenting with, with noise pop at the time. And I had great, you know, respect for what they were trying to do. But what resonated with me personally, you know, during that time period were these great songs, you know, um, and especially, you know, if you heard them on the radio or somebody put them on a mixtape or something like that, and you're just like, oh, wow, they did kind of, you know, this, this band got out there and got a little, a little bit popular. It gave us hope. It gave us hope that, you know, maybe we could get popular too. <laughs> so yes. yeah, that definitely, um, inspired my my choices so let's get down to business tonight as i mentioned earlier jt and i will be curating the ultimate 90s indie alternative mixtape and we'll use the old cassette deck approach meaning our mixtape is going to be broken up into two sides side a and side b jt is the special guest will begin side a with his first song choice and then i'll add a song that i feel best follows up his choice we'll then flip-flop choosing songs until we've mapped out 10 songs for side A. 
We'll then give our mixtape a proverbial flip, and we'll map out side B, only this time I'll kick things off with JT choosing second. Our overall goal for the episode is to craft the best 90s indie alternative mixtape possible through only 20 songs. At the end of the show, you could take our conversation to the next level by visiting the 90s Indie Alternative page at myweeklymixtape.com to give our final mixtape a listen via the embedded playlist. Finally, if you like what you're hearing on the show, please consider becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash myweeklymixtape. And speaking of Patreon mixtapers, a few of them have chimed in with some of the songs they would kick off their 90s indie alternative mixtape with. Starting with Ben from the Too Vague podcast, who chimed in with Local H's Cool Magnet, Cactus Pete, who chimed in with G Love's Baby Got Sauce and Course of Nature's Caught in the Sun, and David Owens, who chimed in with Spot's Moon June Spoon. I also had some people reach out to me at My Weekly Mixtape on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and I want to shout those out as well. Kicking things off with two from Sunny Day Real Estate, Trevor Dale chimed in with seven, and the Music Rewind podcast chimed in with In Circles. Frank Lewis chimed in with Morphine's Buena. Paris St. Germain chimed in with the Dismemberment Plan's Rusty. Philip Bergman chimed in with Voice of the Beehive's Scary Kisses. Chris Uminski chimed in with Sonic Youth's Teenage Riot. Derek Caraview chimed in with the Afghan Whigs' John the Baptist. Sean Faust chimed in with Diggs' Believe. Raul Dukes-Burner chimed in with Jay Unger and Molly Mason's The Contradance. Chael chimed in with Jellyfish, joining a fan club. Mally Hart chimed in with the Folk Implosion's Slap Me. Rob Ebert chimed in with Harvey Danger's Carlotta Valdez. We have two for Ned's Atomic Dustbin with Frankie Pants chiming in with Kill Your Television and Jim Santora chiming in with Throwing Things. Jim Bricker chimed in with the Jim Blossoms Found Out About You. Cinema Poison chimed in with Sloan's Money City Maniacs. Dave Schneier chimed in with Something Happens Devil and Miss Jones. Seth Bophelia chimed in with Hum's Stars. L.I. Sports Fan chimed in with Fugazi's Waiting Room. Hutch chimed in with Cakes the Distance. Jason Whistle of the It's Not That Bad and There Can Only Be One podcasts chimed in with the Nixon's FOMA. Pedestrian at Best chimed in with Adorable Sunshine Smile. Seeker Eleven chimed in with Screaming Trees Transfiguration. The We Needed Roads podcast chimed in with Screaming Trees Nearly Lost You. The Media Path podcast chimed in with Yola Tango's Tom Courtney. Conda96 chimed in with Dada's Darina. Semi-Skeptic Podcast chimed in with Travis's Something. Cheryl Simone Miller chimed in with Concrete Blonde's God is a Bullet, which she did note was from 1989, but I'll allow it. Daniel Dissinger chimed in with Candleboxes Far Behind. And Matthew Kennedy at the X Radio X Podcast chimed in with Modest Mouse's Trailer Trash. Okay, JT, with that laundry list of songs out in the open, I am ridiculously curious to see how you're going to kick this one off. So with that, I'm officially pressing the record button on this mixtape and throwing it over to you. What song are you starting tonight's 90s indie alternative mixtape with and why? All right. Well, I decided to go chronologically. So we're going to go, we're going to start with 1990. And the one I'm going to kick it off with is There She Goes by The Laws. Now there's a reason for this. 
to me, that song was kind of this 1990s turning point of everything that had happened previously in the 80s overseas, right? You had these bands like the Stone Roses and the Soup Dragons and um, you know all these kind of guys that were doing a kind of like a, a guitar pop thing and it really defining a sound. And to me, There She Goes by the Laws was like, this perfect culmination of all of that. It was like this lofty, perfect pop song, like the Beatles could have done that song. And it was this beautiful connection for me between the turning point that was occurring in the 1990s and the entire musical history of of guitar pop before it. Absolutely love it. And you know that song had meaning because of the fact that seven years later, Sixpence None the Richer takes the song and mm-hmm. turns it into bubblegum pop that the entire country is salivating over. And if you think about it, the people that knew the Laws original must have been like, where was this love seven years ago? <laughs> right, right. Because we already know this song is great. Yeah, exactly. And it goes to show the, the importance of a great song, right? It wasn't just their performance, which is so much more stellar, if you ask me, and raw. It had, a, it had a rawness to it as well. Uh, but, it, but it goes to show that a great song is a great song that you can interpret it in many different ways. Well, I hope I'm following up that great song with one that you consider is a great song as well. And I'm going to stay in the early 90s like you are. Okay. And I'm going to play off one that I feel just was a band that was criminally underrated. I'm probably going to use that word a lot tonight. <laughs> and this is a song when I first heard it. I went looking for it everywhere, trying to find it, looking at it. Because at this point in 1992, you couldn't okay. Google the song. It was word of mouth. So I'm walking all over the local record store saying, I heard a song. It's all about Disneyland. I need to know who does this song. And they're like, Disneyland? I'm like, yeah, like the one that's out in California, only it's spelt weird. It's D-I-Z-Z-K-N-E-E land. And the band is Dada. The album is Puzzle. This song to me was everything about 90s indie alternative. This song, the fact that it wasn't a massive number one hit single shocks me. But especially in the New Jersey, New York tri-state area, this song did take on a pretty big moment in 92. But as fast as that moment was... It was gone, and and unfortunately, so was the band. But I still, to this day, have seen cover bands pulling that song out. So there's definitely an element of timelessness to the song. And realistically, now with time, you realize they called it Disney, like with two Zs and a K-N-E-E, so they didn't get their asses sued off. Exactly. But what a great song. So Great song. Dada Disneyland. Throwing it to you, JT. Uh. Nice one. Nice one. In fact, uh, so now I have to scratch one off my list because I was going to go with Dada's Dim from the same record. Nice. Yeah, uh, because that's, um, yeah, it's sort of like Disneyland to me showed this really cool sardonic side to them. And then Dim was this really heavy, serious, you know, breakup kind of song that was really amazing. Also, I'm just going to say a shout out to Seven Horse which is a band that is comprised of the ex-members of Dada who are active on the scene still. They're playing gigs all around and you can find them on TikTok at Seven Horse Band, I believe it is. And it's the number seven horse. And uh, yeah, so they're still doing it. 
go geriatric rockers. Heck All right. Yeah. So uh, if I'm scratching that one off the list, I am going, I'm sticking in 1990 and I'm going to go with a song again, flew completely under the radar with a band that went mostly under the radar uh, for a good reason. They did, they just got squashed, unfortunately. The song Golden Blunders by the Posies. Golden Blunders and the Posies in general were to me this that 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 one of the best, but the last of the kind of Paisley underground pop rock uh movement. And it's such it's just it's a beautiful song. It's got great lyrics, you know, that, that come from this really it's a cool little story. And again, again, very, very poppy and stuff. But you know, it's 1990 in Seattle, and these guys, you know, this is one of their last records that they released and, and one of the last singles. And like next year, Nirvana drops with smells like teen spirit, and it's just freaking over, right? <laughs> If your amp isn't cranked to 10 and you're not flying the flannel, you're done. And these guys, you know, to me, they just got smushed when that happened. It was criminal because it's they were a great band and Golden Blunders, especially such a great song. This was a group that was carrying the torch for the Elvis Costellos in the 80s, I feel like continuing that sound. But for some reason, the musical landscape just wasn't having it because you got to realize mm-hmm. they're competing at that point against the hairband scene, which was still your big rock moment. You still had Poison and Warrant and these bands selling out arenas and you had labels that were looking for the next Poison and Warrant still. They weren't looking right. for the next Elvis Costello. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then they managed to get their their signed and get their records out but then it was a double whammy for them because then grunge hit big and it, grunge just swept away everything um yes yeah it was yeah <laughs> and with that i'm gonna follow up the posies with something that a couple years later i'm gonna go to 1993 for this one i'm a bass player by trade and the first time i heard this bass line I immediately said, I'm going to love this song for the rest of my life. And I didn't even, it didn't even get to the vocals. I just knew. And it was right up my alley. It was one of the first songs that I sat down and was like, let me learn how to play this. This is fun. And this band, everybody's going to know, and everybody's going to know the song. But to me, it falls under this category because I don't even want to say a one hit wonder, but how this band wasn't massive is beyond me and the album is last splash and i'm going with the breeders cannonball nice yes i mean big hit big hit Mm -hmm. everybody knows it it's in its 30th anniversary which i don't even want to wrap my mind around this year (laughs) but this song was everywhere Mm -hmm. i don't understand how the label didn't have the foresight to have a follow-up like this band had what it took to break through the mold in 1993. And the fact that this is the only song that did to me is criminal. Yeah. And I'm just going to say it that I, 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 there had to have been sexism involved, you know, as much as we tried to uh, push the needle in the nineties, you know, it was still the nineties and we weren't quite there yet. Not the way we are now, which still, you know, we have work to do, but yeah, chick band. It's like, oh, okay, well that, wow. We had a nice little success with a chick band onto the next dude rock band. You know, I I think that had to have been part of it. And that's a shame if that is, because 
the breeders that that entire album is amazing but i yeah. wanted to go with the one in, in in this playlist that really that made people go yeah why why weren't they bigger that song yeah. was amazing yeah and you know at the same time you'd had you had like juliana hatfield and you yes. had liz fair and you know these others that were really you know trying to push alternative rocks but you know indie alternative rock and it would take until like the later 90s until Tori Amos and others were coming along that there there was actually this kind of like huge commercial breakthrough the little fair time yeah exactly exactly yeah. sarah mclaughlin exactly yeah yeah but it was it's it's a shame that they weren't bigger than they were all right i'm going to go um i'm going to go one more from 1990 <laughs> and now and i promise to get out of 1990 <laughs> and there's a, a couple of reasons there's a sentimental reason for this and also just the underrated aspect of it so I'm going to go with the Rembrandts, just the way it is, baby. Everyone knows the Rembrandts from the theme to Friends, right? Uh, I'll be there for you. And funny story, we we crossed paths, I'll say, uh, with the guys uh, in the Rembrandts a couple of times. Um, and we were hanging out at Club Lingerie once, and and one of the guys was there, and we struck up a conversation, and they're like, yeah, everything's, everything's screwed, man. You know, we got dropped from the label. The tour was a bummer. You know, I don't know what we're going to do. And I'm like, how could you be dropping the label? Just the way it is, baby. It's like, it's just, a, it's again, another beautiful pop guitar song and, uh, and a great, just a great song. And, you know, he was like, yeah, well, you know, it's just the way it goes. And, you know, we got a couple of pokers in the fire. We're, we're, we're look, talking to another label, but, you know, we don't know if that's going to work out. And we'll probably put together our own tour and just go to the cities where it worked out for us. And, um, I don't know. We recorded some, you know, one of our songs for a NBC show or whatever, and <laughs> maybe something will happen there. <laughs> so that took off. And, you know, that's a nice royalty check to this day. But uh, for, for my band, especially, you know, hearing songs like The Way It Is Baby and, and Golden Blunders and even, you know, There She Goes and that sort of thing was just affirmation that for us, that there was an audience out there that loved guitar pop because we sure loved it <laughs> and and so it gave us hope that you know there'd be there could be success in that in that genre you know despite the fact that monster bands you know that were following the trend were were really what was popular at the time well i want to pivot this to the uninvited for a second here because obviously everybody knows the theme from friends some of your music was featured on some TV shows like Party mm -hmm. of Five, Beverly Hills 90210, MTV's Road Rules, The Real World. These are all shows people know. A lot of young indie bands are striving for just that kind of exposure. My question to you is, because you knew the Rembrandts and you know the whole Friends theme and everything else, having had your songs in different shows, how much exposure did that get the band how much of that was Atlantic Records kind of trying to reap the benefits of it? How much of it went back to them? How much of it did it really truly help you? And then with streaming, a lot mm -hmm. of these shows are having second lives. Are you seeing any piece of that? Because the shows yeah. have your music. So yeah, it's a great question. Honestly, the the, the biggest impact is the money, the, uh, the the residuals. You know, at the time you get a small fee for the licensing and then the rest is is you know the 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 royalties that come from the uh publishing and writing side 
we were very fortunate in that we had a we we had a friendship uh, with a gentleman named John Rosner who had a publishing company. Um, he worked with his father on a publishing company, and his father had been in the publishing business for decades. He he had like Neil Diamond's catalog and a, and a, a lot of old school seventies publishing. And John was um, sort of a co-owner of the company uh, with his father. And at that time, you know, publishing companies were the ones that you called to get sync licensing. And, you know, it's a whole different model and a whole different paradigm now. But at the time, you know, that's who you called. So he had connections with a lot of different production companies and he was able to get us these placements. And yes, the mechanicals were owned by Atlantic. So, you know, they got they got that portion of the money, but we struck up a great deal uh, with John where he did not take the publishing of the song forever. We, we struck up a side deal where he had the publishing from that placement, you know, and then we got the writer's share. And yeah, I mean, we're very fortunate, too, that those were especially, you know, 90210 was a huge hit TV show. So we never stopped seeing royalties from that. Wow. I mean, it just went on and on and on. And then, and then it got big in South Korea and Taiwan and, you know, we're talking like a dollar 43, you know, but we're, not, <laughs> um, you know, after, after a while, but it's still there. It's still in every BMI check we get is, you know, uh, our, our residuals from those two shows, especially 90210 and uh, uh, party of five. So it's something that we're looking into again, you know, since we have such an extensive catalog, but it's a much more competitive and difficult process these days. Uh, the deals are a lot different. I mean, there can be large money deals, but because of how competitive it is and, and how good the music is, and that, you know, the fact that a that anyone can really make a pretty good record these days Um <laughs> It's so competitive that, you know, you, you can, you know, and a lot of these publishers, these sync placement people, they have relationships with people who will go and make music for them. Hey, I need something moody. Oh, I can do that. And, you know, and here it is. Or, you know, I don't want to pay. And this is what happened in the last couple of films we were in was, you know, I don't want to pay $100,000 to get this Green Day song. Do you have something that's like it? I'm like, yeah, this one. And, you know, and we'll charge you. $5,000 deal. And to answer your original question, uh, made no difference on our popularity or, really? yeah, I mean, it was something we could brag about. And again, this is, this was pre-social media. So, you know, we'd send, we'd send out postcards saying we got a placement <laughs> on party of five and our fan base would go, woo. And they would watch it. And then they'd come us the show and say, I heard you on that show. And that was it, you know? So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't make a, a giant international deal about it because there was no such thing as social media at the time. Yeah, definitely. Well, you had brought up the Rembrandts. Everybody knows that band name for one reason. And now I'm going to follow that up with a song again from 1993. I think we're stuck in certain okay. years here. We're stuck yes, three we years apart. <laughs> but here's a band that I'm going to say the name and everyone's going to be like, shut up. They play large venues they're not indie they're not alternative however coming from the standpoint of being embraced by radio top 40 radio this was one of the songs that i heard on 106.5 the end in north carolina in between the hit bands and the band is the flaming lips ah 
and I am going off of 1993's transmissions from the satellite heart and she don't use jelly. Nice. It's a fun, weird, twisted song that would only come from him. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows this band. Of course, they've toured with Weezer. They've done big shows. We get it. The bubbles that are going around. I understand they're a big band. They've recorded with Molly Cyrus when they redid Sgt. Pepper. But radio airplay, mainstream, she don't use jelly, had its very brief moment in the sun. And then college radio truly embraced the Flaming Lips because I continued to hear them all throughout my college and then beyond, but mainstream radio did not. And that's where I feel they fittingly deserve a spot on this list. Nice. Yep. Great call on that one. Uh, great call on that one. And, and it's it's funny that, you know, you'd say that, you know, people say, oh, they're just too, too mainstream. You know, that that's a, that's, you know, they were a big act and they, they, they sold out big shows, but <laughs> You know, not everybody starts out that way. Right. I mean, they, especially you know, in this alternative world, you know, you're just slogging it out, and you're making your crazy music, you know, to grab people's attention and stuff like that. And then suddenly, it gets everybody's attention. And and they're such a great example. That one was so left field. It was so left field that people, everybody started listening to it. And now you have the fun of trying to follow that up because I know yeah, that that's, is a left field song for you. <laughs> that that is that's a great one. Um, all right, did it did it do? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna skip up here into 1991 now. Uh, I promise that that the years fly by a little faster <laughs> after this. And I, I'm gonna go with this one before the other one. Uh, I'm gonna go with um, Teenage Fan Club, uh, Metal Baby. So uh, another act out of uh, Scotland, I, I, I believe they were. But just this four-piece band, two guitars, bass, and drum, strumming big old chords, you know, with their Marshall stacks turned up to 10 and singing these, you know, beautiful pop songs with their stacks turned up to 10. And, and, and I, I just, when I, when I heard, I was like, you know, this is so cool. <laughs> this is so, this is so beautiful and yet so loud and grungy. And I know that part of the reason they got their success is because it, it just, it sounded grungy, right? But it was very pop. The chord changes, the melodies, again, something the Beatles could have done only with Marshall Stacks. And, uh, and I loved it. It's a fantastic song. And I'm sitting here scrolling through my list because I could lean into that grunge aspect of it, <laughs> or I can lean into the pop part of it. Right. And right. I- think coming out of that, I'm going to lean to the pop side of things. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because we've been staying in the early 90s. And because we're covering a whole decade, I want to give some love to the second half of the 90s here. So I'm going to go all the way up to 1996. Nice. And I'm going to go with one of my favorite power pop songs of all time by a band that I feel is one of the most criminally underrated bands of the 90s. And the fact that they're not a household name to me is actually shocking. And the album is Regretfully Yours, and I'm going to go with Super Drag and Sucked mm, Out. Nice. The vo- His voice, it, it's such a beautiful, airy pop song. But when he gets to the who sucked out the feeling, and he's kind of letting mm-hmm. it almost that visceral growl at the end yeah. of the notes, it adds this complexity to the song that takes what would normally feel like the theme from that thing you do something written by Adam Schlesinger, very breezy power pop. And it adds this extra layer to it. Mm -hmm. And 
there's something about this song that always stuck out to me. To this day, every time I hear it, it immediately puts a smile on my face. So I am going to follow up Teenage Fan Club with Super Drag and suck Nice. Out. Nice. Good one. Good one. All right. Well, if you're going to take a jump into the into the later 90s, then I'll, I'll, I'll jump up there, too. And uh, before I jump back. <laughs> um, <laughs> take a dip in the water. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and I'm going to go up to 1997. So this is a band. Um, so... All, all you really alternative aficionados will, will appreciate the fact that this is a band that you probably have never heard of. They uh, were from Los Angeles. They were right there alongside us as, uh, you know, in the clubs and they had landed a deal, uh, I believe on Geffen records and did it to Phil Ramone, I believe uh, produced this album. Um, uh, the song's called flying solo by the Tories. And again, I'm just a power pop guy and they were just a power pop band and they were so good. <laughs> Two guitars, bass and drums, you know, they were, they were a four piece. And the best thing about it was that all of them could sing and they could just sing their ass off. And they had the most incredible harmonies and we'd play shows together and we would just stand there in awe at the execution of their songs. Their songs just all sounded brilliant from stage and they hit all of those notes. And we we're like, God, how do they do that? You know, and then we would go up there and just, you know, flounder and scream and work the audience into a, into a frenzy, but we, we doesn't mean we were good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, flying solo by the Tories, just another, uh, amazing, cool power pop song. And again, they had some experiences with television because yes, the, the show Jesse with Christina Applegate. Exactly, exactly. And um, you know, like I said, we hung out with them all the time. And so, you know, by that time, friends had taken off, and they were like, "God, this better do for us what it did for the Rembrandts." <laughs> like, do you know how much money this could mean? Uh, but yeah, barely one season, and and that was that. Yeah, yeah. Well. You followed them on stage. So I am going to end the side. And I promise you, this is not me brown nosing, <laughs> but I am going to close out side A with my favorite song from your 1998 self-titled CD, Too High for the Supermarket. Awesome. This to me is everything that I love about The Uninvited. It is fun memorable and there's a little bit of a quirkiness to it that <laughs> works really well it's funky it's indie and i have to ask is this a true story <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact um yeah oh it's it's a it's a hundred percent true story i was going over to my brother's house to watch a college football game usc versus ucla and uh i was supposed to uh pick up snacks on the way to his place and so Yes, I, uh, I I partook before I went to the grocery store, and the the, the thing was, I, I literally I I was you know going to go in there and you know buy like thirty bucks and chips and you know salsa and stuff like that. Hundred and seventy dollars <laughs> later, you know I'm walking out with <laughs> everything imaginable. I come in with these like five grocery bags of crap, and I like, bro, I'm too high for the supermarket and. It, it just sort of wrote itself after that. And, um, you know, one of the things that we do, it is, it, it's such a true story <laughs> that 
when we would have these episodes, like various members of the band would have episodes in the supermarket. And so we would come in with a new verse. And so when we play the song live, we have like a library of 15 verses to choose from. And we'll just throw out random verses, you know, uh, about experiences with snack pack pudding or Jimmy Dean's pure pork sausage or uh, <laughs> what happens in the feminine hygiene aisle. And I you know, just, yeah, it, it just goes on. This is a song. The first time I saw the movie Half Baked with Dave Chappelle, Jim mm. Brewer. How did this song not get in this movie? Know, there's the was... scene where he walks out where Kenny walks out with all the snacks and he feeds them to the horse. And every time I hear the song, I feel like there was this synergy between the two, but I absolutely love the song to the point where if my wife and I are in the food store, sometimes I'll just turn to him and be like, stay focused, man. Tune in bread. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So with that, we close out side A of our 90s indie alternative mixtape, kicking things off with the Laws, There She Goes, Dada's Disneyland, the Posies Golden Blunders, the Breeders Cannonball, the Rembrandts Just The Way It Is Baby, the Flaming Lips She Don't Use Jelly, Teenage Fan Club Metal Baby, Super Drag Sucked Out, the Tories Flying Solo, and my guest for the evening, the Uninvited Too High for the Supermarket, Remember, you can head over to myweeklymixtape.com to hear all the songs we're discussing in this mix through the embedded playlist. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. 
And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Now, I want to go back to the 90s as we're talking about the 90s right now and talk a little bit about the uninvited here, because back in the early 90s, where a lot of side A was, the band won MTV's Beach House Band Contest during a time where there was no internet and people were discovering bands either on the radio, at concerts, via word of mouth, or MTV when MTV was MTV. It wasn't (laughs) television shows. They actually played music videos. Right. So here you are. You win this contest on a major network. MTV, this is probably their golden years. The the 80s Mm -hmm. through the early 2000s with TRL is when everybody knew MTV. How much did this truly help catapult the band? And was this that defining moment for you guys? Well, I'll tell you, we, we sure tried to make it our defining moment. Um, it was it was huge at the time. We thought that this was going to that this was it. This was it. Um, and, you know, it's funny because uh, when they announced it on MTV, it was almost like an aside. They were just they, they, they these two VJs were, I think, at the, at the beach house and they were reading off who the winner was. And it was like, you know, um, the uninvited. And then they cut to commercial break. And I mean, that's that's it. That was it. But, you know, we tried to milk it for all it was worth. We also got we got ten thousand dollars that we could use to buy musical equipment with. And this is what is that? Ninety three, ninety four, something. And, you know, so in adjusted dollars. (laughs) So we go out to uh, we go out to buy our musical equipment. And there's a single stipulation is that, okay, since there's five guys in the band, you each get to spend two thousand dollars but you can only buy one item. So it wasn't like we got to go on a shopping spree. You know, it was like, pick out one thing. And so we each, you know, just tried to find that most expensive thing that we wanted. And then, yeah, we, you know, we did a new round of, you know, uh, demos and inquiries to all the record labels, you know, and we put that up at the very top of the list. We got this, you know, we won this contest. We're getting, you know, exposure on MTV. Uh, And... Uh, yeah, big goose egg. Just just did not did not lead to anything. Did not lead to anything. Wow. A couple of years later, like six, five or six years later, we played uh, for the MTV Music Video Awards. It was yeah, that was ninety nine. And interestingly, that was a wholly separate thing. I mean, they they had since forgotten about us, and uh, you know, a whole new whole new people in in the executive suite, right? So. You know, we managed we managed to get that, but it, it was completely unrelated. So yeah, I mean, we milked it to death, but it we it it did not move the meter. Yeah. And at that time, that's actually shocking because you would think MTV, all it would take was simply a mumble of the band's name, and everybody would have been salivating to get to the store and buy it because that's how influential MTV was at that time. Yeah, and and the thing was, you know, one of the main reasons that it didn't pan out to be anything was that the song that won the contest was this song called Successful Vegetarian and very much, very much like the Flaming Lips, just a weird kind of song, but straight up bluegrass. 
It was a bluegrass song. My brother on banjo, acoustic guitar, played with a stand-up bass, uh, harmonica, and it's just straight and 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 I mean, it is bluegrass music, you know, and that was part of the blessing and the curse of the uninvited to this day is what are you guys doing? <laughs> what, what is this? You know, that was, you know, it was a super popular song for us. The fans loved it. And we, we put it out on the seven inch single and, you know, but it's bluegrass and, you know, you, you put that against too high for the supermarket, same kind of funny content in terms, you know, uh, but the, yeah, too high is like kind of a funky pop guitar driven song. And then, you know, the song was a kind of a breakout for us on our Atlantic record. What God said is straight yep. up ska punk. It is yes. ska punk. And that's what it is. And that's the difference. That's the difference. If successful vegetarian was what God said, if it was like a ska punk song at the time, yeah, we probably would have gotten signed at that moment. But, you know, the record label was like, that's a bluegrass song. Wah-ha. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And what God said was the other song that I had in my list that I was debating between the two, but I okay. felt like where side one was heading too high for the supermarket just fit that vibe a little bit better in my opinion. Absolutely. But now fast forwarding to current times, the uninvited has been super busy. Your latest album broken promise land was released through the band's website in December of 2022. And there's something that I personally find extremely interesting about this album you can buy it on the band's website, which is theuninvited.band, but you can't buy the MP3s on iTunes or stream it on Spotify or Apple Music or any of the other providers. Is there a reason for that? There is a reason for that. Overall, I mean, the, the reason is we are experimenting. Um, you know, this is our first album in 20 years or whatever, and, and, and it's a new digital age. And so we're just trying to find the best way to market ourselves and make a buck at it. So we decided that we were not going to just put the album out to the streaming services en masse, like all, here's all 10 tracks, here's the album, go out and stream it. You stream the whole album and we make a penny and a half, unless we're on Apple, then maybe it's two pennies, something like that. Mm -hmm. If you buy the album, for 10 bucks, we net $8. So that's huge. That's huge. You go out and sell 10,000 copies like that. Well, that that's huge. So we're doing it kind of the old school way of like, we'll release singles on the DSPs, on all the streaming services. And if you're interested in getting the album, you can go buy it. And you can buy it for streaming. You can buy it for uh, as a CD. And we're thinking that maybe our, our next album is going to be vinyl exclusively. You can stream some singles, you know, on Spotify. And if you want the album, you can go buy the vinyl album. You can put the needle down on that baby. Streaming is a humongous ripoff. It's money-wise. Money-wise, it's just, you know, there's no money in it. You know, there's you go out and get yourself a million streams on Spotify. That sounds like a lot. Sure does. That's $3,000. Yay. Yay, $3,000. How much did it take you to get that? Streaming is purely, you know, exposure. You have to look at streaming now as a way to parlay album sales and uh, concert revenue or merchandise. Yep. Yeah. I find that fascinating because as somebody who owns 4,500 CDs, 
-hmm. I also have a Spotify account, but I use it for one reason and one reason only, which was something I did not have in the 80s and 90s when I started my CD collection, was the ability to listen to something before I purchase the physical copy. So if there's an album that comes out, I can listen to it all the way through. And if it's an album I just don't jive with, I don't have to buy it and I could save some money to put towards, oh, I don't know, my kids' college funds at some (laughs) point. I'm going to have to worry about. But even though it was just a penny and a half, at least the band got something Mm -hmm. for their work for me because Mm -hmm. they might not be a band that is that I jive with which is totally fine, but I still supported them in some way. Yeah. Now, for the bands I do like, I go out and try to find a way to support it via physical. So if you do press the next album on vinyl, please do a CD as well. Thank you. Just throwing that out as a PSA. Absolutely. Just for me. I'm, I'm sure Just one copy. It's fine. I, I'm sure we will. Yeah. You can do CD on demand now, which is crazy and exactly. it's, you know, affordable. And so, yeah, that's that's what we do. Everything's Everything's on demand. Yeah, definitely. But you know what? Like I said, it's an experiment and and we're figuring it out. And I may come back on here next year and say, yeah, oh yeah, that, that I didn't work. Here's the, <laughs> here's the new one. <laughs> yeah. But by experimenting, you're finding out and learning along the way. And I do the same thing with this podcast. So I do want to talk about some of your singles. And because you are the band on the show, I have permission to play some of these clips. Anyone you want. All right, the first one I'm going to start with is a song called I'm Not Dead Yet. All right, JT, there are two versions of this song. The version I just played, which is available on Spotify and all the other streaming services, as well as a version Mm -hmm. on the website that's listed as the remix. And I listened to it there. A little bit of different lyrics. What's the story between the two versions of the song and releasing a new version to streaming services? Absolutely. So, um, actually, the the one that's on the one that's called the remix is a remix from the album version. The version on the album, it's got some colorful language. Um, so we decided to take out the colorful language, and then we just wanted to remix it to be bigger, louder, and more in your face. And that's basically what we did. So we um, uh, we uh, hooked up with this guy uh, Gordon Saran, who uh, mixes all of Nickelback stuff. By the way, <laughs> we're like make this rock, and so yeah, he just basically applied the rock to the mix, and we redid the lyric, and yeah, and and and, and that's it. That, that that's what you got on uh, on Spotify. And you just heard a clip there. It's an awesome song. I purchased it through Cubaz. Oh, nice. Uh, which is a hi-fi digital service because i i hope essentially the band gets more from that cut however i'm not an mp3 person i like my lossless and they do sell lossless so nice that is me being the music nerd there yeah oh well you gotta you gotta and the next track i'm gonna do is another one i bought from that cubaz site and it's a single you put out called unwritten mm-hmm. yes <laughs>
Now this track has a real, I want to call it Americana vibe to it while nice. still keeping that signature sound intact. And I'd love to know when you play a song like I'm Not Dead Yet, and then you play a song like Unwritten, you're getting the same story like we talked about earlier with what God said and Too High for the Supermarket. There's a lot of different vibes that happen in The Uninvited. Is that something that the band actively seeks to accomplish during writing and recording? Or am I really overthinking this from the outside <laughs> looking in? No, <laughs> no, it's you're, you're not overthinking it because it's something that needs to be thought about. Um, so this is this is a thing. This is an issue, if you want to call it that, you know, that has has plagued us, I'll just say, uh, from the very beginning. Um, my brother and I are the primary songwriters, and our focus has always been on songwriting. You know, we're not, you know, stellar, amazing guitar players. You know, we don't have the best voices in, in the world. The thing that we really focus on is songwriting. And we came from an Americana background, a bluegrass background. The first thing we did was a bluegrass band. My brother was 14. I was 12. He played banjo. I played mandolin, you know, and it was, you know, we did bluegrass bands. Weird. You know, so that's that, you know, that that element is in our DNA. But mostly what we we end up doing is we write us, we write all these songs. And and you know, especially in the earlier, Steve and I were very, very, you know, we were we co-wrote a lot and we were very a hundred percent honest with each other. And we come to each other, you know, say, I got this idea. Your idea sucks. Okay, I'll go on to the next idea. How about this bridge? Oh, that bridge is good, but the chorus sucks. Let's do something else, you know. And then we get to the point where we, when we were writing songs on our own, it was like I came up with a song. What do you think of the song, bro? Oh, that song sucks. You got another one? Yeah, I got this one. And so the pattern that emerged from all this was: is it a great song? You know, is that a great song? If it's a great song, let's work it up. And then we would work it up. I'm like, wow, that's kind of a great song. And then we would play it, and we would play it, and the ultimate arbiter would be the audience. And if the audience really loved it, we're like, it's a keeper. <laughs> and so stylistically, we might be all over the map and we were, and we still are. And that is not helpful <laughs> in, in, a, in a marketing point of view. And this happened to us. I mean, this, this happened to us all the time. I mean, Atlantic even came down and said, you know, to our manager, hey, look, and, and this was this was a defining moment. You know, you know the, the the label came down and said, "Look, we know how to market widgets. So, what's the widget here with the uninvited? All right, are they a party rock band? Okay, because if they're a party rock band, we know how to market a party rock band. Or are they a serious band? Because if they're a serious band, we know how to market serious bands. But what we don't know how to do." We don't know how to market a band that is both a party rock band and a serious band on the same album. A, a band that has two lead singers, you know, we, we, we don't know how to do this. A, a, a band that has a banjo in one track and then a, a farfisa in the other. Yeah, we don't know how to do that. So if you could just get them to be one thing, we'll give you another single and, and, and we'll move on with that. And, you know, and, and our manager came to us with that and we're like, yeah, we're this weird thing. You know, we, we, we couldn't, we, we couldn't make the decision not to, 
you know, choose one. And it is that decision, that decision, that choice, that thing that haunts us to this day in terms of I'm out here trying to market our music on Spotify, you know, trying to use Facebook ads to get Spotify plays on whatever playlist, blah, 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 blah. And it's still like right here in my face. What are you guys? What are you? <laughs> and my brother and I have this conversation to this day. Hey, bro. <laughs> Should we just say that we're an alt-Americana band and lean that direction and take songs that are outliers and cast them aside and say, look, no, we understand that song's an outlier. We're not going to do it. We are an alt-Americana band. Are we going to do that? Should we do that? After 50 freaking years, should we do that? <laughs> and we haven't made a decision yet. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I love seeing is I'm not a massive TikTok person. I do have my TikTok channel. Your channel is one of the main reasons I enjoy going on the app. I love oh, hearing the you. stories about what you've done through your band, your experiences, some of the stories you've told. One of the ones, if you don't mind me poaching one of your pieces of content from the channel, sure. you had a band open for the uninvited that went on to do some pretty interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we did, you know, we played a lot of shows and we did a lot of touring, especially in the pre-Atlantic years, you know, just, and especially around the Western U.S. Uh, since we were based in Los Angeles and, you know, we, so we played San Diego, Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, you know, blah, blah, blah. big Western U.S. tour circuit. And so, yeah, we had a lot of bands we played with and a lot of bands that opened up for us. And I think one of the, one of the, one of the great examples is, um, we used to play this place called uh, Doc's Lab, Doc Ricketts in um, Monterey. And Monterey is sort of our adopted hometown uh, because it, we we became very popular in Monterey. And we became so popular at Doc Ricketts that, you know, whenever we played, there was a line outside, you know, line around the block, that that whole thing. And, you know, so other bands wanted to play with us. And this one band wanted to, to, to play with us really bad. And so the, the owner eventually of, of the club was like, well, you know, you got to talk to the, to the band, you got to talk to to JT or Steve and, you know, they'll, they'll let you know if you can open for them. Uh, Cause we don't need an opener, you know, they're going to pack the place no matter what. So the guy gives me a call. He's like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in this band, you know, we're called train and, you know, we're big here in San Francisco and we, we want to open for you. They're like, all right, you know, come open for us. So they come and open and I didn't hear much of the set. I, I only heard that they closed with a, a, a cover of Zeppelin's Cashmere. And everyone seemed to like their cover of Cashmere. But after the show, I mean, an inordinate amount of people came up to us like, God, that opening band sucked, man. What was up with that? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, wow. We, we were just you know trying to give these guys a try. You know, oh, sorry. And so the guy calls again. He's like, dude, that was so cool. Let's do that again. I'm like, hey, man, I'm sorry. But no um crowd thought you sucked and so we we can't we can't do that we can't we can't do anything that's going to jeopardize our crowd <laughs> so no you you can't open for us anymore and you know but they ended up being trained so <laughs> they went on to you know a, a level of of success that is uh quite excessive <laughs> quite a bit more than we ever obtained 
So, uh, you know, and there's, there's a, a small handful of very similar stories of bands that opened for us that went on to much greater levels of fame than, than we did. I'm not, I guess you're not picking up the phone and saying, Hey, train. <laughs> no. <laughs> Remember us? <laughs> Remember us? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a hard one. Uh, yeah. Well, for the independent music fans out there, I highly suggest you follow the uninvited on TikTok. JT's content is absolutely amazing. I feel like you're kind of working through with your experience of being on a major label and kind of breaking down the walls for musicians that might not know about that. And I think that's important for musicians to hear because there's these people have views of what they expect the industry mm -hmm. to be and mm -hmm. you've lived it and experienced it and you're still doing the indie thing. So having the insight of major and indie, I just find the channel absolutely fascinating. And I'd love to know, are you getting from the band level something out of it where you feel like it's turning to more listens or is it turning to more engagement and are other artists reaching out to you? Because I feel like the stories you're telling are important for indie musicians that are trying to start out now. I feel like this is stuff they need to just know. Yeah, it's it's interesting you would put it that way because the, the biggest benefit of our TikTok channel at this point is that yeah, it's a it's group therapy for musicians. Uh, you know, we went in going, all right, here's this new social media platform that we have to be part of. You know, and let's just you know, okay, here we go, and we did our band thing, right? And we had put out little clips of us playing live shows and getting ready to go on tour and recording in the studio and you know that kind of stuff and it just fell on deaf ears no one no one no one gave a crap about it at all and so it was only when you know we started getting in front of the mic and saying all right here's our experience this is what we've been through that it started getting any traction and you know it, it becomes sort of a you know its own little its own little macrocosm because now you stop reaching music fans as much as you're reaching musicians. But you know what? I think it's great because if, you know, it's become this place where, you know, I, I, I'm able to talk about, you know, my experience in the business and, and my perspective on things and other musicians come in and, and say, oh my God, I feel the same way. I'm going through the same thing. What did you do about this? What did you do about that? Or they can come in and say, wow, man, you are so full of BS. I can't even believe you're on this, this platform, you know, and, but, but then we can engage in some, you know, in some good dialogue because the more things change, the more they stay the same, you know, and they, oh man, you were on a label, you know, back in the Jurassic period, you don't know anything. It's like, oh no, man, no, <laughs> the motivation is still the same. You know, this is about optimizing shareholder value. They don't give a flying, you know, what about yeah. anything else. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's become something different than I thought it would be. And, you know, going back to your question of, you know, has it helped the band a little? There's a couple of truisms here. Um, one, it has helped a little, right? I can see that people click on our on our link, you know, that's in our bio and, you know, and people go and listen to the music. Not a ton of people, you know, maybe it's a 2% conversion rate there. Some people have come to our shows. Uh, you know, I saw you on TikTok. Oh my God, how about that? So, you know, that's cool. But it's also part of the self-fulfilling prophecy of the whole thing. We've had a couple of successful videos, you know, been doing this for a while now. We got like up to like really 10,000 followers and promoters want to hear that. 
promoters want to hear how many, how many followers do you have on TikTok? Well, I got 10,000 followers. Oh, okay. I'll answer your email then, you know, and they don't know that 9,700 of them don't interact with the, <laughs> with the account at all. They just want to hear the number. And so you can tell them the number and suddenly you have legitimacy. But I think that applies to any social media platform. Say, oh, oh, I means. got 10,000. Yeah. Facebook followers. Oh, you are legit. I got a hundred thousand Instagram followers. Oh, you are legit. You know? And the problem is you can spend, and I have the same problem with the podcast, more time being a mm -hmm. social media person than you oh, can yes. investing that time into your songs or for, in my instance, into reaching out to get guests on the show, booking and producing the show. There's a lot of work that goes into podcasting. I wish I could yep. say that you and I just turn these mics on, we talk, and I just hit stop and upload it and I walk away and I'm all done and thousands of people are going to be running to listen that's the goal, but there's a lot of work that goes into podcasting, just like music. And you could conceivably spend more time engaging social media just to because for me, podcasting is a discussion. So mm -hmm. the social media is where the discussion continues after an episode goes out. And I'm blessed to have a lot of the mixtapers who engage with me on social media. So it, it does become a double edged sword, though, because you could stop investing into the actual art that you're trying to create. And I'm not trying to say the show is art, but it is a form of, yeah, it's but an it output. Is. It's a creative mm -hmm. output. Yes. So trying to strike a balance is very complicated. So I completely see where you're coming from. And I think that's why I resonate with the content so much. We are going to continue talking about the uninvited in a little bit, but we did promise people a side B to this indie alternative playlist. So let's get back to it. And I get to kick things off this, All right. this time. And I'm going to go to 1996 and ask the question, so just how far down do you want to go? And we could talk it out over a cup of joe. I am going with the Refreshments Banditos from 1996's Fizzy Fuzzy Big and Buzzy. Another nice. band that just I don't get. That album to me is a snapshot of 1996 musically. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. checked off every box that to me would put them in the same and if not maybe even bigger than a Matchbox 20 at the time. They had the sound, the look, everything, the catchiness, the hooks. And Banditos is the one song that did get a little bit of play, but I feel like this band just didn't get their just due. And I want them to have it tonight. Nice. So I'm kicking it off with Banditos from the Refreshments. Such a great choice. Love that album. Love that band. We opened for them one time in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, yeah, with Dead Hot Workshop, which was sort of a, a rising band from that, that scene too. But I think, you know, they, they, they had the Gin Blossoms were, were like were like the big band of what the Refreshments were, were doing. Um, yeah. And got, you know, and again, talk about another band that gave us hope of like, oh yeah, you know, we kind of do songs like that. We could do songs like that. <laughs> and, yeah. And yeah, a great, great song, great band. All right. So let, let's do one that's going to challenge the notion of what is alternative. Okay. I'm going to go to 1995, right in the middle of the nineties with a song off of Wilco's, what I would say, breakthrough album. 
and the song is Out of Mind, Out of Sight. And the thing with Wilco is you can follow their musical DNA all the way back to, you know, what people considered one of the original alternative bands, which was Uncle Tupelo, right? And they started the whole no depression kind of movement, um, this new Americana movement, which I was totally into being, you know, coming from a bluegrass history myself, loved Uncle Tupelo. And then they split off, you know, the two guys went their separate directions and one started Sun Volt, the other started Wilco. And, you know, Wilco was kind of present through the 90s. But to me in 1995, you know, this song, especially Out of Mind, Out of Sight, was like their calling card uh, style. And so you ask yourself, okay, you know, is this alternative? Is that really alternative music, you know, or is that just more, you know, kind of alt Americana? But if you look at the fact that what was pop at the time was Boys to Men and Madonna Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. TLC. Yeah, hell yeah, it was alternative, you know? That's exactly what alternative was. And it was just great, you know, to me, it just, you know, it still had those roots elements to it. And yet, you know, just giant blazing guitars. Love that song. That is damn near impossible to come out of scrolling through my list because Wilco (laughs) has a sound of itself. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there's going to be a pivot here musically. And the one thing I will tie into Wilco is the year 1995. (laughs) That's about all I've got. I love Wilco, but nothing on my list truly comes out of that naturally. So this is going to be a little bit of a left turn, but an album that I feel is again in that indie quirky vibe that fits where we're going here. And when you have a band that has an instrument called a bass guitar and a git bass, <laughs> which are regular six string guitars modified, mm-hmm. you get the presidents of the United States of America. And no, oh, yeah, I am not going with Lump. Weird Al covered it. I understand that. That song becomes its own stratosphere. And I am not going with Peaches, the one that everybody thinks I was going to go with. I'm going with the song that kicks the album off, Kitty. Nice. Kitty hit my foot and I want to touch it. The yeah. whole part where the kitty's going to spend the night outside and to scratch mm-hmm. it. And just the, it was so quirky. And I think maybe the storytelling aspect of the song is the only way I could even draw a line to Wilco because musically they're two different entities. But Presidents was something where I don't understand how this band didn't get bigger other than the moment in the wedding singer, when they did their cover of video killed the radio star, they're Uh still putting out music and it's still Mm -hmm. great music. I just don't feel like I've seen the presidents play with jam bands like Mo. So they're another band where they're able to kind of hop from bill to bill and people Mm -hmm. respect them no matter what bill they're on. And that's an interesting aspect. So tying it into Wilco, I feel like that's kind of my linchpin to connect those two. That's great. And what year did that album come out? That was 1995. 1995. Okay. So in 1994, right before that album came out, they were the buzz band at South by Southwest. And we got to see them in concert at this club and they just tore it up. And I mean... Everything that you think that their live show would be, you know, listening to that music, it was. And it was amazing. And there was one moment where the 
the lead bass player, I guess. <laughs> yeah, whatever um, you want to call it, right. <laughs> is jumping is jumping so frantically that he smashes his head on the top of uh, 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 of the stage. And he's lit- literally bleeding out the skull. And he just keeps going. And it was such a rock moment. And and they were so good and so tight and so different. Yeah, and they, they were all the buzz the next day. That was such a great album. And like you say, yeah, just... Where'd that come from? You know, so unique, so cool. All right. Well, now you're making it really hard to follow up. So I'm going to, um, we're just, we're just upping the ante here every time. All right. (laughs) Then I'm going to go, I'm going to go with something else that was kind of artsy and quirky at the time that became incredibly inspirational for me. 1997, Ben Folds 5. And the song that I'm going to go with is The Battle of Who Could Care Less. Wow. Good one. Thank you. So, you know, Benfold five became kind of a householdish name. They came, became a mainstream name. Still make music to this day. Ben Folds is, is an absolute genius himself. I believe he is now the creative director of the Philadelphia Philharmonic. I might get that wrong, but he has became the creative director of, of a big national orchestra recently. When that, album came out in 97 they'd done a couple albums before i believe i think that was the first single the battle of who could care less uh before brick came out and brick of course was a number one hit and propelled them off into the stratosphere and at which from which they quickly came down i mean it was it was a fluke alternative hit brick was and i also don't think that that song is indicative of who ben folds is yeah exactly hundred percent hundred percent. But the battle of who could care less, especially coming out then in 1997, to me just sort of encapsulated that alternative rock was getting commercial because it's this total indictment of the scene, you know, of, of who can be most, who can have the most antipathy in the room, right? Who, who can care less. And it's so clever and it's so different you know again it's guitar it's um piano bass and drums you know and the bass player's got a fuzz box forever so he's he's rocking it and it's jazz it's pop it's i don't know what it's uniquely them and when i heard that record i got my hands on everything ben folds that i possibly could and then listened to every album he put out since it ben folds became an influence a major influence on um especially on finding my voice in songwriting because his voice is so distinct and he, mm-hmm. he, he it's such narrative songwriting and there is not a single cliche or even th- anything even close to a cliche in any of his songs and it's incredible and so i'm going with that one and what's funny is i recently finally picked up a copy of rock in the suburbs on CD. Oh. And when you go back and you listen to that, you're like, man, this is, this is something else. He, he really has a way with words, a way with delivery. And the way I'm going to tie into Ben folds is with another artist. I mentioned his name earlier, but it's a band that had a massive hit song. It was a pop smash cover bands cover it to this day. And that hit song is Stacy's mom. Nice. But when you're talking about Fountains of Wayne, there is an era of this band prior to Stacy's mom. And when I first saw the band, they were this small group 
getting their big exposure, opening up for Smashing Pumpkins on the Melancholy and Infinite Sadness tour. And I did not know a single thing about them. We went to the show and they come up on stage and they open up with this song that blows my mind. And to this day, it is such a perfect snapshot of 90s power pop that I feel like it's it fits in this mix. And that song is Radiation Vibe. Oh, yeah. The first song off their Great. self-titled album. Adam Schlesinger, when he passed, it broke my heart. The guy mm-hmm. had such a way with melody. He had a power pop band called Tinted Windows with mm. James Eha from the Smashing Pumpkins, with oh, wow. uh, Taylor Hansen, and with, oh God, drummer of Cheap Trick. Oh my God. Bunny Carlos? Bunny Carlos. I am no so sorry. My brain way. just- And this <laughs> album came out in the late 2000s, and it is such a perfect snapshot of power pop. And when Adam passed, it broke my heart because, I mean, he wrote- the theme song to one of my favorite movies, which was That Thing You Do. The guy just had a a way with music. And this song, to me, I just wanted to spotlight it because it's not the Stacey's mom. It's not the That Thing You Do. It's Radiation Vibe, and it's a song that is so underrated, and it fits so well musically with what we've put together so far. So that is my track five. Awesome. Awesome. Great choice. All right, underrated then. Let's go with... um... underrated that that's got to be the linchpin here all right well underrated in my opinion <laughs> i'm gonna go with g love and special sauce for also yes. from 1997 i-76 i-76 uh, all right yes. so to me i heard about g love's first album on caro q and richard blade the 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 dj did <laughs> He's like, okay, here are the bands in town this month or this week. Uh, Love and Spatial Sauce. And I'm like, <laughs> what band would be called Glove and Spatial Sauce? <laughs> and I finally figured out it was G Love and Special Sauce. And I got the album just on that and had been listening. You know, I think that um, the album was called yeah it's that easy that's right mm-hmm. so um yeah it's that easy was maybe the third album or something like that and to me g love was in peak form peak form so as a white boy rapper he had his flow down as a blues guitarist he was authoritative his his other albums the previous albums you know he was so far in the back pocket he was like in another pair of pants but you know his playing was authoritative and his songwriting was was like on point now and so it was to me that was like one of the best g love and special sauce albums and i-76 just has this great vibe you know of a bunch of guys just talking about what (laughs) talking about what's the best way to get to the arena to go watch the game like what what route should you take and (laughs) it's just it's awesome. And so I've been a huge G love fan. And to me, that's, that's the one, that's the one right there. I love it. I had cold beverage from their oh. 1994 self-titled. I, I couldn't yeah. see a universe without G love making this list. I have had G love on my prior podcast playlist wars, been a fan for a long time, but that's a tough one to come out of looking out of my list. Side wow. B is, is a little mixed up and all over the place, <laughs> but in a good way. But isn't the 90s, wasn't the 90s mixed up and all over the place? I mean, that was the beauty of it. 100%. And I think the song I'm going to pick 
fits in that mode just so well. Because G-Love was kind of this outlier, like you said, it's mixing hip-hop, it's mixing blues, it's mixing acoustic, it's mixing a little bit of everything. And in 1995, on the album I Am an Electric Firecracker, a band called Mm. Tripping Daisy did a little bit of everything. And they had this song that was so 90s, to me it defines the decade, just vibe and sound. I'm going with I Got a Girl. Nice. This was another one of those songs that I heard endlessly on 106.5 The End down in North Carolina. And sometimes if the damn DJ didn't talk up at the end of the song, you didn't know what the hell it was. And you had Uh to start asking around, who does the song I Got a Girl? Who does the song I Got? Mm -hmm. And finally you find it. And it's always the, you knew the album cover because when you see the album cover, you're like, that's a 90s album. And sure (laughs) enough, but everything about it worked and everything about that band is so cool. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that I Got a Girl was the only one that captured people's attention, at least at the mainstream level, because such a talented band outside of it. Lest we forget, members of Trip and Daisy went on to form the Polyphonic Spree, which is still growing strong now. And then yeah. there's the fact that some mixtapers chimed in with their songs. So I know they're on people's minds when it comes to this topic. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great choice. And it, it, to me, there's a, there's a direct line between that and Flaming Lips, right? Oh, yeah. There's that same kind of quirkiness and, um, yeah. Okay, then I'm going to take a step back and um, go back to 1993 to a band I loved that was, again, to me, one of those 90s alt-rock power trios that was really underrated, really overlooked, but really, I think, helped define the genre. And that's Buffalo Tom. All right. And I'm going to go with Soda Jerk uh, nice. from their 1993 album. Uh, I think the album was Big Red Letter Day. And I want to say they were from Boston. Shoot, was it Boston or Detroit? Anyway, to me, they have, <laughs> even if they're from the Midwest, they have this kind of, they have this kind of East Coast sound to them. And I should probably just look this up and solve it once and for all. But it was just, you know, again, it, they there was just the three of them, guitar, bass, and drums. And and when you're doing the power trio thing, your songs better be freaking great because you're not covering anything up with, you know, uh, lead guitars and keyboard padding and, you know, lush textures and stuff. It's, you're belting out a great song. And to me, that was, oh boy, love that song, love that album and very alternative. Very, very alternative. And one of those bands that, again, you had mentioned Juliana Hatfield before. Mm-hmm. They were all kind of in that, I guess, lumping by stations because you would always hear those songs kind of in a series or in a block, so to speak, because you wouldn't be tying them up with a band like Sponge or somebody right. else from that Which era. is on the list. Yeah. yeah, I have them on the list too. And oh, God. Damn, this is tough because I am looking through my list and I've still got 15 songs and I've only got one choice left. Oh, all right. We're down to our last choice. We're down to our last choice each. And this is really tough. But all I'm going to say is there's an easy volume two to this list here because I have so many leftover songs that we're not even scratching the surface. But being a bass player, I'm going to go with one of my favorite bass lines of all time. This bass line, the first time I heard it, I literally told my buddy next to me, shh, and I turned the radio up because I had to just absorb what was happening. 
And this song blew my mind in 1996. And here we are in 2023. And the song still blows my mind. Only now it's when I'm in the movie theater watching the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And it's playing (laughs) in the background. Because this is a band that never got past in the meantime. And it's Space Hog from 1996's Resident Alien. Nice. Massive arena rock. I don't know what you'd call this song. The bass line is funky. You've got it over this halftime groove, but then his voice comes in and it's got this beautiful falsetto over these soaring guitars. You don't know if the chorus, if they're trying to be Bush, if they're trying to be that alternative hard rock, or if they're trying to go with this funky mix and it stuck out to me and it was so fresh and so original. And the label, I don't think knew what to do with them because this was it that I heard on radio from them. And it's an absolute crime. Yeah. So I'm going to go with space hog in the meantime. Nice. And I'll tell you where guardians of the galaxy in the first movie touched on everybody's seventies nostalgia. When mm-hmm. I saw that trailer and they played this, I'm like, Oh, they're going after my age group now. Damn it. <laughs> and it's working. I have to see this movie now, no yeah. matter what. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a uh, great choice on that. That would that would, I had I had absolutely considered that one uh, for the list. So I, I'm glad you covered that. And yeah, I don't. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, we could probably have a whole other podcast about how the record industry was changing the '90s and was changing. I mean, it was changing dramatically in the '90s um, with the advent of Napster and the internet starting to take mm-hmm. off and this whole idea of digital music and digital downloads and and that sort of thing. And I think it was really accelerating and an, an idea as old as time, but that was accelerating further and further. And that was, you know, sort of lack of artist development. Yeah, it was, you know, there was a lot of just like, all right, let's see, you know, let, let, let's sign some bands and see what works. And, you know, there were so many major labels at the time and, you know, they were releasing each releasing four new bands every three weeks. And, you know, so there was, it was just a, a lot of running up the flagpole and see who salutes. And the, the part that I, I could never figure out is like, that was a great song, but you know, why didn't you give them a follow-up? You know, you, you're telling me the follow-up wasn't as good or, you know, you just, you were too busy going on to the next thing because that was the schedule. The schedule was four new bands every three weeks. Oh, and you also have all of your veteran bands too, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it was just, you can't. <laughs> You can't keep up that schedule. Anyway, like I said, whole other podcast. So let me just get to my last song then. Yeah, you get to close out the whole night tonight. All right. Well, then I'm going to close out kind of the way that we were we were going in, you know, talking about what is indie alternative rock. So I'm going to go a little more obscure and I'm going to go with Mockingbirds by Grant Lee Buffalo, 1994. Such a beautiful song, beautiful, ethereal song that, you know, to me again, was sort of like, um, you know, this wasn't his first album. Um, It wasn't their first album. You know, there's this direct line into the Paisley underground, uh, you know, that was, that was happening and, you know, making sort of lilting, beautiful, ethereal music that was in direct contrast to the formulaic, you know, pop that you were getting from Madonna and Michael Jackson and 
you know, and, and this kind of, of thing, that it truly was an alternative to what else you could listen to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, really underrated band um, making really uh, beautiful music. Uh, and to me, uh, Mockingbirds was the sort of the one. Love the pick. To me, Grantley Buffalo kind of fits in the same category as a band like The Sundays, if I throw them out there. Yes. Yes, please do. Yes, exactly. Their cover of Wild Horses, again, like Mockingbirds, it's this atmospheric song that really mm-hmm. is not it's hard to define because yes the the one i'm talking about is a rolling stones cover that everybody knows the original but they were able to make it this heartfelt tender ballad beautiful soaring yeah and i think coming out of the big heavy in the meantime kind of funneling it down from that thought process except without the distortion mockingbirds is a perfect way to close this out so there you have it folks Side B of our 90s indie alternative playlist, starting with the refreshments, Banditos, Wilco, Out of Mind, Out of Sight, Presidents of the United States of America, Kitty, Ben Folds 5, The Battle of Who Could Care Less, Fountains of Wayne, Radiation Vibe, G-Love and Special Sauce, I-76, Trippin' Daisy, I Got a Girl, Buffalo Tom, Soda Jerk, Space Hog, In the Meantime, and Grant Lee Buffalo Mockingbirds. I'd listen to that. Wow. <laughs> Hell yeah. And you should by visiting the 90s Indie Alternative page at myweeklymixtape.com to hear all the songs we've discussed in this mix through the embedded playlist. Now, JT, before we close up shop for the night, getting back to the uninvited. At the end of 2021, your brother Stephen released a book through Hearn Publications called The Uninvited, on the road with the greatest rock band you've never heard. My most difficult question of the night, did you read the book? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I read the book. And my brother even gave me an advanced copy and said, you have to approve of this because there's some revealing information in here. (laughs) And I'm like, just print it, bro. It's all good. Well, why don't you tell people a little bit about what you read and where they could snag a copy? Because I feel like when people understand the story, it just creates a bigger connection to the music, which is something that certainly happened for me. Oh, I I appreciate that. Um, Yeah. I mean, uh, my brother is is a fantastic writer and he, you know, finally decided to um, do a memoir of the band. And what's cool about the book is that it's it's more than a memoir. It's more than just a, um, okay, on this day we did this. And then on this day we did that. He really tries to weave a story of why he was doing this great adventure and what are you willing to sacrifice for your dream? And then what do you do when your dream changes that, you know, then what happens when your dream changes? And, um, it's a great book. I mean, I, all humility aside, I, it's just it's a it's a great book, and uh, kudos to my brother. It it actually uh, hit number one on uh, Amazon's punk rock memoirs chart. Uh, he actually got over uh, Dave Grohl's book. Oh wow! Just for a week, but he did it. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, I mean, you can still get it on uh, on Amazon. You can get it off our website at uninvited.com or theuninvited.band. And uh, I, I I recommend it. 
I certainly do as well. It's a fantastic read. Now, a couple more questions for you, JT. Going back to your TikTok page, given all the stories that you tell on there, what advice would you give an indie band starting out now if you could go back and maybe give yourself the same advice when you guys were starting out in the 90s? Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Because I'd probably give two different bits of advice. At this point, I would tell a young band, be yourself. Just absolutely 100% be yourself. You know, look at your musical influences and let them influence you, but don't try to be them. Don't listen to anybody about what your music should be. Be be you and take the time to really look inside and say, okay, here's what makes me special. This is my voice. This is my perspective. This is what I do. This is how I think, how I feel. This is my my perspective on things. And then be that. Don't try to be anything other than your really authentic self. Because, you know, in a, in a world of competition where we're all competing for attention, authenticity is the only thing that's going to capture and, and maintain someone's attention. And the competition has never been more fierce than it is right now. So that's what I tell a young man then. If I went back and, and told myself, you know, had, had to tell myself a, a, a bit of uh, advice, you know, um, it would lean a lot more towards believe in yourself, uh, believe in your instincts, trust your instincts. And I guess, you know what, I guess, honestly, I would tell myself uh, as well that, you know, there's a business side to this, which I guess is something you should tell kids these days too. This is as much business as it is art and, you know, not, not business in this back of, you know, mind your money because <laughs> no, like you are a business now. You, you better know your marketing. You, you know, you, you, you got to understand artist development from a sales and marketing standpoint, because no one is going to help you there. Labels don't do that. Nobody does that. Nobody does development. So, you know, hone your business chops because it is more business than it is music, which wasn't quite the case back then, but really is the case right now. Well, speaking of that business, JT, what does the rest of 2023 have in store for The Uninvited? Is there any new music on the horizon, shows, touring? Absolutely. All of the above. So we're going to be... Um, we're going to be releasing a couple of more singles from the new album this year before we go off and make another album. And we're doing a little bit more touring. We're, we're going back up and down the West Coast again. And then uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed on a couple of festivals that we're going to uh, are, are hopefully going to come through. So we're back at it. We're um, yeah. So, you know, if you come to the website, uninvited.com or the uninvited.band, you can get on our email list. You can see all about tours and shows. You can buy the album. You can find out where you stream The Uninvited, which is basically everywhere. We're The Uninvited, so you can stream us everywhere. We're, we're the one that's not a Viking death metal band, basically. There's like <laughs> six Viking death metal bands that decided to call themselves The Uninvited, and, and we couldn't get a cease and desist order to. Uh, so we're the ones that are not Viking death metal. Well, you guys are eclectic, so maybe you should write a Viking death metal song. <laughs> <Maybe> we should. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, JT, thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape, and I hope to have you back on the show again sometime because I feel like there's a lot more of this road we can go down. Brian, it was an absolute joy, so thank you so much for having me on. Really enjoyed it. 
Remember, Mixtapers, you can find my weekly mixtape on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at My Weekly Mixtape. You can also head to MyWeeklyMixtape.com to check out the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. If you want to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon Mixtaper at Patreon.com forward slash My Weekly Mixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, enjoy the tunes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.